It is March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, as I'm recording this, and I just found out that Dick Dale, the surf guitar legend Dick Dale, is dead at the age of 81. Six-plus years ago, I had the chance to talk to him, and by talk to him, I mean he did all the talking. Dick Dale was a storyteller, and the way I edited podcasts back then, yeah, I did, you didn't hear much from me at all. But Dick Dale and I talked about his entire career, his love of the guitar, learning the ukulele, pulp fiction, and I thought today would be the perfect time to share that with you. Dick Dale recorded with me back in 2012. It is a Carcon Carne Extra. Looking back on when you bought your first guitar many, many decades ago, was the bond with the instrument immediate for you? Well, I have many windows in life, and I and I'm not I'm not what they call bonded to anything. Whenever I do something, I do it. Well, first of all, let me explain to you. I've been with the monks. I've been to the martial arts all my life since my teens. I've been in the temples. I've been underground, and I've learned a philosophy. I've been given three months to live. Also, I went through that, and now I went through another case now. That was in my 20s, and now, uh, for the last seven years, I've been dealing with cancer and with uh, diabetes on top of that. And as I speak to you now, I'm in what they call renal failure, the next step to the machine. And because of the radiation, because of the chemo, because of all those things that ruined the inside of my body, put holes in it, and leakages, and nobody knew what was going on. And my wife, Lana, who was born in St. Petersburg, Florida, she had worked as a nurse treating the veterans. So she's always wanted to heal to the world, and, uh, and that's the way she is. She's got a deep soul. And she was the one who saved my life three times when five and six doctors were standing looking at screens, couldn't figure out why I had collapsed after standing there for 12 hours. And she walked in and said, gentlemen, he has three fistulas, one, two, three. That's holes, and she could see them because they were looking for something else. So she is this special part of this angel of my life that has kept me alive. And they're saying I'm not supposed to be on stage and not supposed to be playing because I have fistulas in my body. And if I strain, they open up and I start bleeding, going through what's, what's happening, and then it leaks into my body. So I, I say the hell with all that, and, and we treat our bodies differently. We use oxygen because cancer cannot live with oxygen, and that is uh, liquid drops into our water that we drink. So we have a different way of looking at life. So when I'm performing on stage, I do it because we've been doing it for so long, and we have so many families with their children with the same diseases and the people like that. They see me on stage, and they go, oh, my God, how can he do this at 75 without taking drugs? Because Lana and myself, on birth, we have, I have never put a drug in my body. In fact, I pulled the tubes out of my arms uh, in, in the hospital because if you take any kind of pain uh, killer, uh, it will retard healing 50%. So we both have ridden the train of pain because she has fibromyalgia in her body. And from her mom, had been carrying our, uh, her mom has MS. And she also has a Herzl tumor in, in her thyroid and her throat, which we tr- work on ourselves. Well, we're a couple of sickos that take care of each other, and we just go on the road, and we still we talk with all the families and all the children. So in the beginning, when I was a little guy, I used to read uh, Superman magazine, and, uh, and on the back it said, 
sell so many jars of noxzema, and we'll send you this ukulele with a cowboy on it and his horse and, and a lariat. And, of course, I've always wanted a, a, a horse as a child and, and stuff like that. So I went out and I sold these jars door-to-door in the snowstorms in Quincy, Massachusetts. And what I'm doing is I'm telling you a quick story. And so what happened is the people would say, Dickie, you're supposed to be in school, you know, and I said, stop, buy my Noxzema skin cream. And I sent the money in. I had to wait about four months, and I got this ukulele, but it was made out of pressed cardboard, and the pegs would fall out, and I got so frustrated, I threw it in the trash can, and I went and got my little red wagon rider and and uh, took my Pepsi bottles and in in uh, Coke bottles, and I got six dollars, and I bought my first plastic ukulele that had the real tuning pegs in it with screws. So then, what happened was when I picked it up, because I used to listen to my dad's big band albums with Gene Cooper and Harry James, <laughs> and at the same time, my uh, uncle, a friend of the family, gave me a trumpet, and I started playing on the trumpet in school. And I've been self-taught. I never took lessons in anything. Keyboard is my favorite. And so I can play every instrument there is and, and, uh, enough to, to satisfy myself. And what would happen is I'd be playing on the trumpet, and then I'd be playing on the ukulele. Well, I was also playing on my mother's flower cans uh, and sugar cans with the knives, uh, to, uh, listening to Gene Cooper. And nice. Gene Cooper was the first person to make drums a solo instrument in the band, but he got all his rhythms from the indigenous tribes throughout the world. And, and they always uh, danced to the rhythms, uh, counting on the one. And musicians today don't do that. They go on the one and, and on the offbeats. And so they would bang there, even during their warble dances, they would take their spears and go boom, ticka ticka bucka, ticka 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 boom, ticka ticka bucka, ticka 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 boom. And that's always on the one, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. And that's the way conductors conduct a complete orchestra, symphonic orchestra, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But the people today, when they learn, they don't learn that. They learn on the one and. And you can always tell when they're clapping their hands to a song, they make the audience clap. They're always clapping on the offbeat. And the minute they, the leader who's singing stops clapping, everybody claps on the onbeat, just, uh, just subconsciously. So when I started strumming, I was strumming on the ukulele like I would be playing drums like Gene Koopa. And I would play his rhythms. And, and then, of course, when I was holding the ukulele, I couldn't understand why... Uh, uh, and my fingers wouldn't go on the strings properly because the book didn't say, turn it the other way, stupid, you're left-handed. <laughs> and so then I just forced my fingers to play an ukulele. And then from there, when I got my first uh, uh, round hole guitar, flat top, uh, it was when I was walking in the back swamps in Natick, Massachusetts, where my grandma and grandpa lived. They came over from Poland and on my mother's side, and she was a phenomenal cook, and we used to eat everything from the ground. We'd plant it all, and my buddy and I were picking swamp berries because she'd make blueberry turnovers. Well, I was listening to strumming in the the woods, and I says, whoa, what's this? And we saw an old shack, and it was just like deliverance, and we were walking up the stairs, (laughs) and this crickety old shack, and it was about five guys strumming, and when I walked in, 
man, they were scary looking. I looked at one guy, I said, nice tooth you have. But oh, the, man. the whole thing in a nutshell, they had their cigarettes rolled up in their t- T-shirt and sleeve and everything. And he goes, well, I, my guitar's for sale. And I said, well, how much? And he goes, eight bucks. And man, that was all the money in the world to me because I was working for five cents an hour in a bakery. Wow. And so what happened was I said, can I make payments? So I, I had 50 cents. I gave it to him, and I was paying him 50 cents a week till I paid off the $8. Uh, I remember him grabbing me on the street because I didn't pay the last 50 cents, and he flipped me upside down, and 50 cents fell out of my pocket. So anyway, I, that was my first guitar, and I said, God, what am I going to do with all these strings? And he goes, oh, well, just play the, the ukulele strings, the first four, and just muffle the other two. <laughs> Nobody will know the difference. So I started strumming on it as if I was playing my ukulele, and everybody thought I was a guitar player. And I was singing Hank Williams songs, and the country was my love at, the end at that time. So I just loved to sing those kind of songs because everybody in the world, for instance, you can take all the music, jazz, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, uh, progressive jets, anything and everything, and put it in one big barrel. And the other barrel, you just put in country music, and it's a 50% listening ratio in the world. And that's the difference. And the reason being is because, first of all, uh, country and western are songs of places, and hillbilly music are songs of people. Mm-hmm. And the, the the you know the words you know like oh give me land lots of land and the starry skies above that's that's western music, and then the other kind is why'd you leave me today that's the hillbilly music and that's writing all about our downfalls with the mates you know and all that kind of stuff, so and everybody in the world on this planet goes through all that when they're fighting with their mates and breaking up and their boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and that's the reason why everybody relates to it. And it's why it's such a huge listening market. Well, I've always loved it because I was a sentimental old fool too, and and I would do uh, sing them kind of songs because I just loved the way they sounded. And that's what I was doing. And then when I came to California in 1954 with my family, I uh, got an, uh, uh, an electric guitar out of a pawn shop, which is in the Huntington Beach Surfing Museum in California. And and that one there, uh, I started when I was playing on Town Hall Party with people like Johnny Cash, Tex Ritter, Freddie Hart, Lefty Frizzell, Ernest Tubb, uh, Gene Autry. All these people would play down there on that stage. And uh, so I had that guitar, and then later on they found out I could play trumpet, and I didn't want to, I played a little bit of trumpet with them, and I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to be a cowboy singer. And then I took the guitar I got on a motorcycle at that time. I was in the Sultans of Southwest LA. It was a it was a car motorcycle club, and I had a 1941 WLD Flathead Harley, and uh, and which I I stripped to the bones and redid, and I rode down to Balboa, California, where there was a big ballroom called the Rendezvous Ballroom, where held 4,000 people, and every big band played there. Every band known to man, and it it went broke. Uh, uh, Stan Kenton lost about $80,000 trying to bring jazz back, and it closed. And uh, at that time in the 50s, 1955, anybody who played the guitar, it was considered devil evil music, and they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't get permits to throw concerts. And so the graduation kids used to have to have uh, horn bands. 
And so they had that. And then my dad and I went into the city officials and the police departments and everything at night, had secret meetings, and they didn't want the neighbors to know what we were doing. And I just said, would you rather have the kids out in the street drinking T-Berg, Underberg wine, or would you rather have them in a building where you can control them? And then they says, well, they go to wear ties. So my dad bought a box of ties, and the guy and I started surfing at the time, and I had 17 surfers I was surfing with. And I said, hey, I'm playing at the rendezvous tonight because we got the permit. And they all came my, in, the, in their bare feet and shorts, and my dad gave them a tie. And then I just started banging on my guitar. And then, of course, that's when I met Leo Fender because I was blowing mm -hmm. up every amp there was. I blew up over 50 of his amplifiers. <laughs> and what controlled, that's why they call me the father of heavy metal. And they call me the king of the surf guitar because the guys I was surfing with said, Man, you're the king. You're the king of the surf guitar. So then what happened was I turned around and met Leo, and he became like a second father because when I held, he gave me the Stratocaster he had just made. He says, tell me what you think of this. And I picked it up, and I held it upside down backwards, and he, and he fell off his chair laughing, and he never laughed because he was like Einstein. And that cemented a relationship with us. And then we just started, uh, I started just pioneering. I was his guinea pig and pioneering everything that came out, you know, the Fender Rhodes piano, the Contempo organ, uh, all the different instruments we were making. And then uh, when the uh, reverb, I needed something, and this is where the historians get all screwed up too. They go, well, that wet, splashy sound is the surf sound. No, I sold already 80, 88,000 albums uh, at the ballroom because we had built it up, the crowd up to 4,000 people a night. And then what happened was um, I, I wanted a my voice, I didn't have a natural vibrato because a lot of my songs I was singing. So I wanted something to make it sustain like the pedal on a piano. So I told Leo, and of course he doesn't like that kind of stuff. He just wanted straight monaural sound. Mm -hmm. But we created an echoplex, and we, I didn't like that. And then all of a sudden I found in my Hammond organ a metal casing with springs in it, and it said reverb. And I says, well, that's the sound I want. And I gave it to Leo, and we created this separate box with three tubes in it, and uh, 6K6, 7025s, and 12AXT7. And, and uh, I plugged in uh, a sure dynamic birdcage microphone like Frank Sinatra would always use. And my God, I started sounding like Dean Martin. And then uh, after a while, about maybe two to weeks, I said, what will it sound like if I plug my guitar in it? And I plug my guitar. But I had already recorded Surfer's Choice, and that was me surfing in the cover. It was the first uh, surfer picture ever used for commercialization and, and uh, to sell something. And, um, and, and what happened was um, the, the kids had already called me King of the Surf Guitar, and that whole album did not have the reverb on it because it I didn't have it designed yet. So, okay, what came next? I know your health has always been really important to you. You've always led a very clean and uh, exemplary existence. When I got to playing, you know, I didn't go to parties. I didn't, because I can't stand talking to a can of beer. It, <laughs> it's, it's the same sentence over and over again. So I, I don't do that. So I haven't eaten red meat in 50 years. I haven't, I don't, uh, I've never had a drug in my body. I've never put alcohol in my body, and my wife is the same way. And, and that's it, and that's why I can continue fighting what I'm fighting and uh, within my body. And uh, 
going from there. I was thinking about the fact that there are parents who take their children to see you at this point, and thanks to Miserloo being in Pulp Fiction, you have this very broad, cross-generational appeal. I had done, in the 60s, a, a young kid came up to me from a college, from this uh, high school or something like that, here in Riverside, and he said, Mr. Dale, um, and he visited me at my nightclub that I had up there in the in the wilderness and rivers in the high mountains uh, uh, the back the back hills of riverside california and he came to me and that's when i had all my lions and tigers and my animals that i was preserving the breed so that they wouldn't be killed by poachers <clears throat> they weren't in cage like you would see zoos see the see them in zoos and he came up and he said i kind of stuck my foot in my mouth and i told the principal that i i could I could talk to Dick Dale and give him to play a concert at the school. But he was such, and he says, I'm, I'm a beginning writer. And I said, all right, I'll go and do it for you. And I asked my guys, and they said, okay. So we did it. Then he came, and he did a, a big two-part page write-up in the paper. And it's called In the Beginning, and it was a great story on Dick Dale this, Dick Dale that, and me picked surfing through the wall of a wave. And then after that, I never saw him again for years. And then when Jimmy was born, all of a sudden I get a phone call because it made the AP release news to the, whatever they call it, to the nation. Mm-hmm. And he says, congratulations, this is a voice in the past, congratulations on your son. And it was from San Francisco. And it was Joel Selvin was his name. And he became the number one writer for the San Francisco paper. And he's had written many books from Ricky Nelson to Elvis, everybody. And he was a big haunch now. And so he said, why don't you come to San Francisco and do a concert? He goes, I never played Frisco before. What if I, what if you threw a party and nobody came? He goes, oh, I'll make sure they come. And he wrote a huge article. And everybody was there and the place was sold out. Scruggs, I think, was the one who owned a place called Slim's. And he, I went there, and the kids were there, and there were looky-loos that didn't know, but they read about me, and then there were the people who knew about me. It was a whole mixture. And then all of a sudden, he said, why don't you do the CD? So I did the CD, and when that came out, it was grabbed by the CMJ, College Music Church. Sure. All of a sudden, I got this, the, the, this, this contacts coming in from Canada, New York, Florida, from all around on the, on the different colleges, on the CMJs, they call it. And I never knew what that was. But it was college kids with the radio stations that did not want to be harnessed and told what to do by the local radio stations. And they played what they wanted to play. Well, all of a sudden, Dick Dale is on the top of their charts. In fact... They took every single song on the on the album that we did, the CD, and made it one, two, three, four, five, all the way down. They said they had never done that before. So what I did was I went and made it a point to go to every one of those places. I went on tour. I went on this tour that I created and that I had booked. And then um, I went to every one of those places to say thank you and talk with them and do a radio thing with them. And... That's what exploded Dick Dill nationwide on my 
to go and do tours. And I was doing everything from the colleges to the, the local uh, pubs, the venues, the local clubs, the dinner houses, everything like that, and outdoor concerts that they said, wow, this Dick Dale is on, on the CMJ charts. They're the ones who made me on, on a comeback. And because I was still playing just locally and I was kicking back up in the high deserts and surfing every day and doing whatever I wanted to do like that, running my nightclubs that I had built. Well, I, then I went on the road. And that is what got Dick Dale, bam, across the nation. Now, during that tour, uh, Tarantino came to my uh, bass player and gave him a, a note and said, my name is Quentin Tarantino, and uh, I want to. I need to speak to Dick Dale. Well, my bass player didn't know who he was, so he threw the note away. Oh, no. And then Quentin found me in my dressing room, and he said, Dick, I've been listening to your music for God, a million years. And he says, you're so powerful. And, and he says, I make movies differently. Most people make a movie and put music to it afterwards when they're watching it. And what I do is I take a song, and I play it over and over and over in my head until I see a movie and create a movie from the energy of what I'm listening to. And he says, the energy of your song that you're playing, Amizalu, it's a masterpiece. And what I want to do is play it over and over and over again and create a movie to complement the masterpiece of your song. I want to give a masterpiece of the movie. Well, I've always been a rebel in this business, and I don't go along with all the big boys. And I tell all the kids not to sign contracts so they, so they can lose all their copyrights. I tell them how to sell their CDs, uh, how they can own their own rights to their music. And the big boys don't like that. And But I don't care. I've been doing that ever since I've been on, on, I've been on stage since 1955. And so what happened was he had the door slammed in his face so many times. Same way with uh, John Travolta because sure. he became typecast after he did his big movie. And, and, and he said to me, he was so humble. And I just said, Al, go ahead and do it. And what was ironic, he goes over to Amsterdam, where I just came back from, and, and performing, and I stayed in the same hotel, and he played the song over and over and over again and created the movie, and I got a call one night and said, I'm sending a limo down. I want you to jump in and come on down to Universal Studios and tell me, what you think? And it was a pre-showing. So I went down there, and all of a sudden, fizzled him, bam, right in the beginning of the song. And guess who had the last laugh? Look what it did for John Travolta. He's, a, he's flying uh, jumbo. He's flying jets, for Christ's sake. And I'm, oh, yeah. only, and I'm only flying twin-engine aircraft. <laughs> and and, uh, and then uh, uh, Quentin became the president of the Cannes Film Festival. His uh, The movie was in the uh, Scripps Clinic, uh, what do they call it, the, the, the museum, uh, being at the top ten uh, action movies. I mean, he got the last laugh, and look what it did for his career after that. And he, he, he's, once again, just a super polite guy, and that's the reason why I said go ahead and do it. And, uh, of course... Then uh, the music started uh, going for commercials and things like that, and and the rest is history. Just kept on going. But and and I've done so many different types of commercials and everything all over the world. You know, from VW to Renault to Nissan to Sky Blue to everything. Yeah. And um, 
and that's what's been going. So I still like to do. I play. I played like, for instance, in Berlin. I'll go over there. And it was over five hundred thousand people. It's like Woodstock when we play. <laughs> and then uh, we play to twenty thousand people, ten thousand people. It all depends where I'm playing, uh, the fairs, the festivals. But I like the local nightclubs that'll hold, you know, four, five, six hundred people, you know, eight hundred people because um, the people are, are close to me. Well, yeah, you do a festival show. There are physical blockades between you and the audience. They've got giant steel gates and frames in front of the, you know, in front of the stage, where the people can't be close to me. And I'm and I'm looking at little little heads the size of fins, you know. I crush your skull. I crush your skull. But anyway, uh, you know, I, I I enjoy going and doing where I can go and talk to everybody when I'm done. I sit down, I sign till everybody leaves, because they're there bringing their children. They're there uh, telling me their stories, how many times they've had the tops of their head cut off and with a brain tumor, and and we try to make fun of it. Uh, laughter is the greatest healer that there is, and so uh, you know, oh, you're in the same club. You know, we have the cancer club. We used to have buttons. How many times we had radiation, and uh, and and. and Every time you go in for another jolt, I mean, every for six weeks, Monday through Friday, they were giving me three jolts in uh, three different parts of my body, yeah. which just wiped it out inside, and it caused it to be like concrete, so that when your real flesh tries to heal with the the concreted radiation flesh, it can't, it cannot uh, heal like a scar can. Scar gets stronger. This here, if you cough too hard. It'll pull away, and you start bleeding because, especially if you're wearing a bag, where they've oh stopped, God. you know, your fecal matter comes out of a bag, right? And then, and then your body starts leaking. I was in Europe for two years, and my body was leaking for two years and destroyed my bladder completely. And when they operated on me, they thought my bladder was fine because they were looking at a magnified version. And until when I was laying on the gurney afterwards, I said. Uh, uh, don't you think that's magnified? And they push a few buttons. They go, "Oh my God!" Oh and it, God! It, yeah, and it shrunk down to the size of a pear, and and that's why I'm in renal failure. My kidneys stopped and everything else, and so uh, you know I've had catheters uh, for two years of this catheterizing myself and going through all that. So these are the things that we laugh and we joke about, and uh, because everyone else is going through the same things and they're going through the same type of infections and everything else. Taking care of yourself through all this does not sound like a very easy thing. I used to have to sit in my ranch here by myself before Lana came for me. And I had an incision going right straight down my belly, down into my abdomen. And it was clamped with metal clamps and it was not draining. So they just came up and they cut all the clamps and they stuck their hands and just ripped it, the whole thing open. So it was about four to six inches long. And you could see the inside of my stomach. You could see oh boy. the skin and the red flesh was in the meat, and you had to go down into this valley inside and flush it out with a special water, disinfected water, and then go in and, and tamp it with a certain kind of gauze. And then, uh, but it would stay open. I mean, it would be open an inch wide, and you could see the insides of yourself. Oh, boy. I said, well, how is it going to close if it's not stitched? And they said, well, it will eventually heal from the inside out. Oh, and every day, 
twice a day, three times a day, I used to have to sit there and look at myself inside my stomach because the home nurses didn't know what the hell they were doing. And they said I was doing it better than them, so they just left me alone. And I would just clean it out, drain it out, and then put a little bit of gauze in it lightly and then tape it over and then till I tore off the tape again to do it. And I would do that every single day. And it finally just closed itself and left a little hole that kept draining, and that hole finally closed. And that's what I had to do every day without without the use of any pain pills or any drugs. Wow. Uh, well, here you are. You're getting ready to go out on the road again. And at this stage of your life and career, what does that mean? What, what kind of preparation goes into a Dick Dale tour circa 2012? My guitar, it's just like when I get through playing it, I don't play it anymore. I, I don't practice. I don't rehearse. I make it all up on stage. I don't follow any... Uh, if I really rehearsed every day and practiced, rather, if I I'd be a, I could be a real good guitarist. So, Dick, the show at Space in Evanston, which I've since come to learn is sold out, um, in addition to you being your typical Dick Dale force of nature on stage, I mean, what I'm hearing is you are there as kind of a therapy session leader. You're, you're kind of a role model for people who have dealt with, wrestled with their own afflictions and maladies. Uh, just kind of a reminder that, hey, you know what? You can get your boots back on and get out there and do what you love. Well, that's what what it's all about. It's don't, don't let the negatives take hold of you. Because when people come up, tell me, God, my uh, my husband is sitting feeling sorry for himself in his rocking chair and everything. He's complaining about every ache and pain he's got, and he's doing this and doing that. And then I made him come, and I brought him in a wheelchair, and he's now he's walking around. <laughs> That's awesome. And she goes and stuff like that. And then I'll tell kids on the stage. The end. I say, when you guys go home, you go and hug your mother and father. And you tell them thank you every time they came into your bedroom when you were coughing and sneezing and you had a temperature of 102, 104, and they were going nuts and they were taking food out of their mouths. And now look look how you are. You're too big to give them a damn hug. Hmm. Tell them how much you love them. And when they're gone, you ain't going to be able to tell them you love them. You always think you know more than they do. But let me tell you, pal, you know, you may have intelligence. Monkeys have intelligence. And intelligence becomes your worst enemy. Why? Because all these wonderful intelligent things that spring up in your mind that you want to try, half the time you get screw blued and tattooed. <laughs> and, and, and so what controls intelligence? One word. It's called wisdom. And where does wisdom come from, my friends? It comes from age. Taking all those mistakes in life and whether you have the brains enough to learn what not to go back to and what not to do. That's called wisdom. So now I get email from parents telling me, one guy, one father said, Dick, I don't know what you said to my son, but he came to me, we haven't talked in 10 years. And then, you know, he's just off on his own. He came to me and we sat over a cup of coffee for about 10 hours. Wow. And so if you can get through to one person and make them see the light, I, you know, I don't pull no punches with anybody. And, you know, if you're going to be weak and, and take the drugs and take, take the bullshit and everything that you're doing to your body, I have a T-shirt 
that we sell. And it says, and it's picture me kind of looking into a blue background. And it's uh, right in, next to my face. It says, your body follows your mind. And you think about that. Don't screw up your mind with, with such crap that's going to kill your body. Your mind is the one who makes the decision to put all that crap in your body. And your body is just a poor, innocent victim. Uh, do you think that's right? I don't. My conversation with Dick Dale from close to seven years ago. Rest in peace. What a monster guitar player he was. What an inspirational guitar player he was. Carcon Carne, if you're listening to this, coming up in the weeks ahead, uh, lots of big stuff planned. A local band Bummed Out will be playing in the car. Robin Hitchcock, one of my favorite all-time musicians without exaggeration, will be in the car. Jim DeRigatis, the man who broke the R. Kelly story and an old friend of mine will be on the show. Alex Ross, arguably one of the greatest graphic novel artists of all time. Uh, also, The War on Peace returns so much more in the works. Uh, thank you for listening. Please, by all means, tell a friend, Carcon Carne. <laughs>